previously on Hacker Valley Blue. Today, we're switching gears and introducing the first ever season of Hacker Valley Red. We talk about what red actually can do for organizations and what the, the path of somebody in the red side looks like. What does an unhackable device look like? One that's off. <laughs> <laughs> can you have an unhackable system? Yeah. Just don't plug it into anything, bury it in concrete, and don't use it. Is there ever such a world to where we can produce an unhackable device? There's no, there's no unhackable. This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. This episode is sponsored by Risk IQ. There are so many researchers and analysts that I know and trust that use RiskIQ's platform. Not to mention I've personally leaned on RiskIQ while leading threat intelligence capabilities in my career. RiskIQ has been crawling and absorbing the internet so practitioners can leverage that data during investigations and research. If you want to learn more about RiskIQ, visit RiskIQ.com or jump down into the information below in the show notes. In this episode, we have a special surprise for everyone. We have chess grandmaster Maurice Ashley, and we talk about the parallels between chess and cybersecurity. We talk about what it takes to be a champion, and we talk about his amazing background. Without further ado, let's get right to this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again, repping Hacker Valley Red. In this episode, our special guest is Maurice Ashley, an expert in strategy who has become a chess grandmaster and also author of Chess for Success. These are just a few highlights, and everyone is in for a real treat this episode. But most importantly, welcome to the show, Maurice. Thank you, both Chris and Ron. I am thrilled to be here. Maurice, when we built Hacker Valley, we actually had chess players in mind. They're mental athletes working hard, using their brain to solve problems. And so we couldn't think of a better person to bring onto this season than you. For the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit of your background and what you're doing today. Thank you. I'm a grandmaster chess player. That means uh, that I hold one of the highest titles, or actually the highest title you can hold in chess, the absolute highest title as a world champion, uh, who happens to also, of course, be a grandmaster. But this is a title that I dreamt about for many years, attaining, and uh, finally did so in 1999. And today, my playing career is pretty much wound down, but I'm into many other things, which mainly my job is as a commentator for high-level chess events which people get a little confused by. You can commentate on chess and it's, yeah, it gets real in there and in wild and woolly. So I have fun doing that with my team, travel the world doing that. And, and I have taught chess, trained national champions, written. I have an app that teaches chess and the like. So I'm all things chess. Basically, that's been my job, my day job, my night job, my life since I was in my early 20s. 
there's so many parallels between cybersecurity and chess, and we'll get into that in a minute. But even looking at the training and the actual execution of cybersecurity, there's so many parallels. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you train for chess. What are some of the tenets of that training? It's fascinating when you guys actually reached out to me and, saw, and said cybersecurity and chess. And my mind just popped. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Because chess has this incredible metaphorical intimacy with everything in life. It has these connections that we make, that we look at the world and we see the chess tenets play themselves out in real life constantly. And why not in cybersecurity? And it just made perfect sense of having a, a red team and a blue team for us is black and white, but chess pieces come in all sorts of colors as well. So it's just cool to be able to speak to someone in a field that I didn't even think about talking to people in this field as I know it connects back to mine. And in terms of training for chess, our training is actually quite rigorous, as you might suspect. It's really about uh, deepening your knowledge for starters. Uh, there are copious numbers of chess books and content that's been written over the millennia. Chess is 1,500 years old in its current form, 500 years old. Uh, it's traveled the world in a multiplicity of places people who have dedicated their lives to this sport, this art, this science, this competitive activity. And so we train with books. We train with databases. There are games with, there are databases with millions of games of chess players from all around the world. My games, you can just Google Maurice Ashley, bam, and my games will just pop up on a site like chessgames.com, for example. And then we deeply study our adversaries. We break down their moves, their preferences in terms of openings, their middle game strategies, how they, how good are they in the end game to break a person? Do they have the right technique? We try to really get inside their minds. I want to know what they eat for breakfast. Right? What do they watch <laughs> on television? I want to know all your mental tendencies because when you get on the board, you're going to reflect who you are on that chessboard. So psychology is part of it. Physical fitness for those long games that might last four, five, six hours, and then you have to do that nine days in a row. And they're intense games. So you want to be fit. You want to hit the gym. You want to bike. You want to run. You want to swim. You want to do whatever it takes to have that kind of endurance that, it, that you need in order to excel when performance time comes. When I think of being a chess grandmaster, I think of having a 10,000-pound brain and starting chess at birth. Can you unpack and describe what was the journey like to be a grandmaster? Do you really need to start when you're a kid to obtain such a title or did you get that later in life? I thought you were teasing me because they called me big head when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I did not start at birth. I actually started playing chess as a random board game with my brother and his friends. My brother's actually eight years older, so I'd follow behind him and anything he did, I wanted to do. And so chess was one of those things that they played along with all kinds of board games, including things, checkers, Monopoly, you name it. And, but I didn't get serious about chess until I was 14, which in chess is actually geriatric, right? Mm. You need to start chess like five or six. I just interviewed someone who started for the cover of Chess Life magazine, for the cover story, who started chess when he was two and a half. 
Like, are you serious? His father was teaching him chess at two and a half. So 14 for a grandmaster is super late. The youngest grandmaster in history got the title at 12. So just imagine wow. being a beginner when you're 14. So I started late, but I started in high school. I played with my friends. And then I went to the parks in Brooklyn, here in Brooklyn, and played against the park hustlers and also some serious park players who calls themselves called themselves the Black Bear School of Chess. It wasn't exactly like going to Harvard, right? It was right. a bunch of brothers who were very serious about chess and study the game, as I sometimes describe it, like rabbinical students study the Torah. And so I got into this group, saw their work ethic, saw their fire and desire and passion to win. And that's where I got my feet thrust into the fire. And that training was excellent for me when I finally went into chess tournaments and played against the top players, the masters, the international masters, the grandmasters, and really had to bring another level to my game. And it took me a while. It took me from 14 until I was 33 years old. So 19 years before from starting the game to finally becoming officially recognized as a grandmaster. Being great at something is a, a game of exposure. The more you expose yourself and immerse yourself into the thing that you love, the thing that you're passionate about, the better you're going to get. What would you advise to folks out there that are looking to get into anything, whether it's chess, cybersecurity, about exposing yourself to those different scenarios to capitalize your game? You're absolutely right and spot on. For us as chess players, we need to find better competition out there all the time. I don't want to beat you and beat you again and beat you again and then pat myself on the back and pretend that I've done something. Once I've conquered one level, I want to get to the next level. I want to find the better players. I want to find people who can whoop on me and say, no, you still have a lot more to learn. And then what can I learn from them? So that's critical. We go out and thankfully nowadays can go online and seek games on any chess server out there, whether it's chess.com, chess24.com, internet chess club, you name it. They have all these amazing chess sites you can go to and just challenge people and buy ranking as well. So I can get to someone who's my level a little bit stronger so that I can learn from them. And that exposure is critical because we're stuck in our own minds. You're not going to grow that way. That just doesn't work. And even if you read books, it's still you translating from a book and trying to figure out what that says. No, you've got to apply. You've got to go out and find those people who have mastered or grandmastered their craft so that you can beg, borrow, steal any ideas that they have to offer. In the same vein of exposure, representation is huge in, in the world. It's not even just a cybersecurity thing. It's not just a chess thing. But being the first black grandmaster in chess that has to have, you know, hold some weight and that's got to be have a, a safe place in your heart. I would love to hear about what that means to you to be that representation for underrepresented youth around the world. It's funny because when I was first trying to become a grandmaster, it was really about becoming a grandmaster, right? This is the sport. This is the activity that I love to do full time, wake up, go to bed. Chess became my thing ever since high school. But as I got closer to the Grandmaster title, there were people who were observing this, and I'm talking about Black people, brothers and sisters who played, who understood that there was going to be a different kind of social significance to my attaining this title. 
as African Americans, as black people, we're not exactly famous for using our minds, for being intellectually rigorous, for being sharp in all these fields. And I, I want to share a story about that. I was teaching chess in Rikers Island, on Rikers Island in the prison there. And I was teaching, I had the opportunity to teach to this group of young people and who were locked up there. They were waiting their court cases and such. And the first day I walked in, the teacher, who happened to be white, was introducing me to the young people. And he said, hey, guys, and these are young men around 17 to 20 age. And he said, here is Maurice Ashley, the grandmaster I told you was going to come visit our chess club. And there was a young man in the middle of the room in the back, more in the middle of, with his leg up on a chair. And he looked at me and he looked at his teacher and he said, he's no grandmaster. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't the news to me. What are you talking about? <laughs> and the teacher said, yeah, it's Maurice Ashley, the grandmaster I told you was going to come. And he said, there is no way that he's a grandmaster. I thought he was going to be Asian or something. Damn. This is a young black man who is now locked up in prison with his life changed forever for whatever he did with the mindset that he could actually look at a person that looked like him and not believe that this person could be a chess player and a chess player of renown. That was the devastating thing to hear. It was heartbreaking to hear. Of course, I set up five chessboards and played five of them at the same time. And I quoted Sun Tzu while I was kicking all their rear ends. <laughs> <laughs> and it became very evident that I knew what I was doing on the board to him and all the other kids in the room, young people in the room. But that symbolism is not lost on me, that there is that significance of showing yourself as a role model to those who don't believe they can become what they cannot see. Absolutely. And it's so important to be that influence for the youth and surround them with that positive energy. And for anyone that looks you up on Google, they'll quickly find that you have some very also renowned siblings that are world champions in their own. What was that like growing up with such competitive siblings that bring out the competitive nature of you? Or was it something else that made you seek this, seek this mission to be a grandmaster? You can just imagine our household with all those gladiators <laughs> and trash talkers <laughs> in the household. Definitely, when I reflect on it, I do recognize the influence that my older brother had on me because he was the one, eight years older, who started martial arts and won to become a black belt in karate. He trained me in karate at an early age as well. And so his desire to become a champion was definitely something I think that brushed off on me. It's something I don't tell him often enough or don't, maybe I don't tell him at all because we're so competitive, all of us. But I think I'm going to give him a call after this interview and let him know and thank him for that influence. But he was certainly a part of it. And part of it was just how we grew up. We grew up believing that we should give it our all, be the best at whatever we do, that we were capable of anything. My grandmother raised us and 
she was a teacher. She had that that passion for knowledge and sharing everything that she had as a teacher as well. I think that's where I get part of my passion as a teacher. My mother actually sacrificed 10 years of intimacy with her children, the three of us, by leaving Jamaica where I was born to come to the United States to get her papers together so that she could then bring us to join her. So that kind of determination as well, patience and consistency of spirit is another thing that I feel influenced me as a person growing up. And the ba my baby sister, Alicia, I guess she just saw all of that as well and followed right along. Yeah, I've got some badass siblings, no question about it. <laughs> my brother is a three-time world champion kickboxing champ, right? Kickboxer. My sister is a six-time world champion boxer, and she actually was and maybe still is in the Guinness Book of World Records as the oldest boxing champion, male or female, in history. Wow. Mm. We do some things, and, <laughs> and we push each other, too. We, Whenever one does one thing, we first laud it, congratulate them, and say, wait a minute, I've got to do that, too. And my brother is in the Boxing Hall of Fame, in the Kickboxing Hall of Fame. I'm in the U.S. Chess Hall of Fame. And you should see my sister. She's already won six world championship titles. She won three golden glove titles in Madison Square Garden. And she sees both of us get that. And she's like, what? How come I'm not in the Hall of Fame? Hey, you're going to get there. Relax. It's okay. <laughs> we love each other and we push each other. And I think that's what allows us to always want to excel, even in retirement, uh, as far as our performance days. It's the next level. It's as a teacher or whatever it is we do. We want to do it at the highest level. That is so amazing. That's awesome that you have that relationship with your siblings. One thing that I think about when you speak about martial arts, I've been in martial arts my entire life. And the, for the majority of that time, I was doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And with Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you're actually practicing against somebody that's trying to do the same thing you're trying to do. And that has... It has parallels to chess. It has parallels to cybersecurity, because when we think about red team is supposed to be that opposition. And as that opposition is owning the blue side, they are actually learning. They're learning and they're changing their, their structure. They're changing how they play. What are some of the tenets that you have for practicing and then practicing for performance? In chess, we're red team and blue team all the time. At the same time, it's you're attacking, but you're also defending against vicious threats that your opponent's trying to throw at you from every angle. Maybe I should have studied some more cybersecurity, man. <laughs> you guys better watch out. I might, be, might have to look at that field. At any rate, with chess, it is exactly that. And I did martial arts. I said my brother first taught me karate. Then I practiced Aikido for many years. And the idea of studying your opponent, getting inside their heads, also being able to use their energy against them. That was the greatest thing I learned from Aikido was this idea of using your opponent's energy against them, letting even letting them do what they want to do because then you're going to exploit the defects in their plans. And that's next level. That's like where the, the grandmasters reside. And instead of stopping them, actually allowing it to happen, I'm sure you guys have something similar uh, in your craft. But... We need to train that way as chess players to get our minds in that kind of elevated space where we're able to break down plans and 
anticipate threats and study the opposition and be ready to accept sometimes a sacrifice of a few of your pieces in order to excel with the greater good of the others or the whole, the overall army. And that requires not just physical training. It's a big part of it. When I'm at the gym pushing weights, for me, it's like the weights are the opposition. But mental training, meditation um, is another key component because you want to have a very peaceful mind in the middle of the chaos. And of course, it's the study of the, the nuances of the game itself, but also after a game, it's really important. And one of the things that we treasure as chess players is this process we call the post-mortem. And that might sound macabre, right? Like the post-mortem. Yes, but we are dissecting every single one of our moves and our opponent's moves after a game to be able to understand what we did wrong and how we could play better next time. And that requires a certain spirit, an openness of spirit, openness to criticism, and openness to recognizing your flaws, the, the areas where you tend to make mistakes. Those tendencies get exposed. And you just have to be rigorous enough, at the same time steely enough to accept that, the reality of your imperfection and your willingness to grow that's going to make you go to the next level. You actually are all, you're already an expert in cybersecurity. You talked a little, <laughs> bit, little bit about deception and we do the same things. We put these devices on our networks that, and we lure the red teams in, we lure the attackers in to attack these devices, to show their, to show their strengths and also to expose their weaknesses. And along the same lines, we do postmortems too. When we're, when we experience a breach, we have to understand where did we go wrong? What happened here? And how do we fix it next time? And also in this season, we've been exploring the idea of an unhackable system. And I'm sure there's maybe some notion in chess where it's like, how do you become an unbeatable player? It might not be possible just because of all of the possibilities on the chessboard. But what's your philosophy in creating that unbeatable strategy? Foolish, ridiculous, crazy. <laughs> Are you mad? You can see that's going to fail. <laughs> uh, for us, the infinite possibilities of the game or near infinite make us say no way. Because there are two stats you need to know. One is within the first four moves in chess, there are three billion possibilities. Two, the number of possibilities in chess has been calculated to 10 to the 120th power, which is more than atoms in the observable universe. Mm. Good luck with that. <laughs> We're <not laughs> trying to solve this game. The chess engines, AI, that have come put chess under a veritable assault right now trying to solve the game, they have not solved the game. Engines that can think billions of positions per second, they still have not solved the game to be able to say this is the best move. So I'd be curious as to why you'd even want to come up with this <laughs> impenetrable system because as ingenious as you might be, there's going to be someone who's going to try to, to crack that nut once you've put it out there. So for us, I think it's much more about a state of skilled readiness where we are ready at all times to deal with whatever comes. And in, that includes how to deal with the mistakes we make once they have occurred. You've got to be 
you've got to be open to that because you're going to make a mistake. You're human. And even if you create a computer system, it's going to have its own imperfections as well. So I think it's an unrealistic goal. And in some ways, I feel like we don't want to solve chess, right? There's a piece of us that's like, really? This wonderful game that has been around for so long, all these hundreds and hundreds of years, and suddenly you solve the game and it's over? The mystery is done, right? (laughs) The romance seems like it would just go out of the game at least a little bit if you completely solved it. Not that I still don't want to kick your ass on the chessboard now. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) Humans are still going to want to beat other humans. But I think it would lose a little bit of its luster if chess was actually solved. You bring up a good point. Cybersecurity wouldn't be near as much fun if we had unhackable systems everywhere and there was nothing to chase down. I love the fact that you brought up readiness. When I think about cybersecurity, we train, we do working groups, we have tabletop exercises, and we have purple teams, which is the combination of that blue and red component. Because when you get into a an actual incident, then you can't think. You almost have to move through muscle memory. You have to react. You have to be quick. And that makes me think about blitz and bullet chess. And I'd love for you to explain to our listeners what blitz and bullet chess are. And also, what are some of the the components of being in a flow state when you're doing those uh, particular games? Yes. And by the way, just thinking about the unhackable thing again, it's bothering me so much. And I'm thinking, if you did that, wouldn't you just be out of a job? Like, when your whole industry was shut down? We solved the whole thing, guys. Unhackable. That's it. We're done. You're fired. Like, why would you do that? Anyway, back to your question. This, the the image of chess, generally speaking, is that it's a slow game. It's deliberative. You've got to ponder and look 15 moves ahead, et cetera. Okay. Part of that is true when you play what's called classical chess. That's the slower version. But the, the version that's fun, the one that you'll see when you go to Washington Square Park or you go to St. Nicholas Park in Harlem or Fulton Park here in Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy, You'll see players playing Blitz. And Blitz is the version of the game where it's five minutes per side. I have five minutes on my timer. You have five minutes on yours. You hit the clock as you play, and time ticks down. And if your time runs out, whatever's happening on the board short of checkmate, you lose. Well, there's stalemate if it's a draw, but most of the time, 99% of the time, you're going to lose when your time runs out. So time becomes a factor. Speed becomes a factor. You've got to be quick. You've got to be intuitive. You've got to trust your ideas. If you make a mistake, so what? You've got to deal with it. And players who play Blitz or really good at Blitz tend to even have a slightly different character for those who are solely focused on classical chess. And yet to be really good at Blitz, the best of the best at Blitz are also among the best of the best at classical. It's important to train slowly in order to be able to intuit things at a faster pace. Bullet takes it to another level. It's like blitz on steroids because bullet is only one minute per side and the best in the world at bullet, they're not thinking virtually at all. Everything is intuition, experience, and flow state. Just move, go, whatever happens, ignore it. And when you watch them play bullet on a chessboard, because a lot of it can be done online on a screen as well with a mouse, but 
on a chessboard with your hand having to pick up the piece, put it in the middle of the square because there's an etiquette around chess that you can't just be throwing your pieces all over the place. You've got to put it in the square so I know exactly where it is. Then you've got to reach over and hit the clock on your right, the timer, which we call a clock, and do that so hand to piece to board to clock back to hand board piece clock. The whole flow of that is like a blur. It's like Edward Scissorhands playing chess. (laughs) Zoom on the board and it's electrifying. So that is something that you can't hesitate. You can't stop. You have to be so prepared, so ready, so intuitive, so instinctive, but have chess so ingrained in your system, in your mental capacities that you're just bringing it. And it's wonderful to watch and it's wonderful to experience as well when you're playing. When you think about something going at that speed, I I just was sitting here thinking about there's so many ways you could try to play somebody by moving a piece like it's not supposed to move or switching out pieces. And it almost makes me think about the video that went viral with you when you played the brother in the park uh, with Tim Ferriss. I would love to hear a little bit about what that experience was like. That was hilarious because Tim Ferriss, uh, for those who don't know, is a guru, a self-help guru, basically. He tries to hack activities. That's what he says. He uses the word hack. So he decided to do a show where he would hack all these activities, including chess, where he would learn in two weeks enough to be able to play against accomplished players. And his producer called me up and said, this is what Tim's going to do. He's going to try to learn chess in two weeks, and then he's going to go to the park and play chess against the hustlers in Washington Square Park. And I was like, okay. <laughs> he's <gonna> have <laughs> his chin reorganized. <laughs> mm. I want to see that. And so I went to the park. They asked me if I would come and hang out. I went. I watched him. The two games he played, it was blitz. And the guy was a just a park hustler. The guy was sitting down, playing chess. And the brother wasn't even looking at the board, virtually. He just poor, killed poor Tim. And mm. divested him of the notion that, yes, you could do this. And then they asked me, would I play one of them? And what's Grandmaster Etiquette? Why am I going to play these guys? I'm, they're trying to make a living, et cetera. Mm-hmm. He said, no, one of them has agreed to play you. And we think it would be great to film, especially since Tim didn't really <laughs> get it done for us. He didn't quite have chess, did he? <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll do that. And that's when we sat down and we played. And it turned into really entertainment gold. I didn't see the video for a couple of years, but when I did, they had cut it together. And what had happened, if your audience hasn't seen it, you just look up Maurice Ashley trash talking. It's got about almost 7 million views now on YouTube. It's pretty funny. And it was fun. It was definitely a great experience to have. And I'm, it's one of the things I did in life, which I never planned to do. It so often happens. That turns out is one of the best things I've ever done. <laughs> During that video, there was something that happened that I thought was pretty interesting. At first, uh, the opponent that you were playing, he was very confident. And you were talking back and breaking him down a bit on the board and psychologically. And I think that really affected his gameplay. Does that ever happen when there's competitive play or the players trash talking one another? Does that help someone get into the mind of their opponent when you're playing chess? Absolutely. Just go to Washington Square Park and bring money and you'll find out. <laughs> what they, about on the like champion level? Do on they... the championship level, it doesn't happen. There's an uh. etiquette in chess that says you're not allowed to try to distract your opponent. 
in part because I think, how do you limit people from saying things that truly are out of bounds? Right. And so you don't want to see that happening. Uh, people might start cussing. Uh, people might take things personally. And that would just create a kind of rancor that you don't want to have. And so we limit that in chess at, the, at that level. But you go to the parks. Absolutely. <laughs> All bets are off. Uh, don't bring your kids because the language is, is going to get <laughs> it's going to get out there. The metaphors used are going to not they're not going to be PG. I'll tell you that. And people are constantly trying to throw each other off. At the highest level, I would say the psychology that comes into the game, and it does come into the game. I already said about analyzing your opponent, but nowadays what we're finding is people are having things like Twitter wars. So they don't do it on the chessboard, but you'll see the top players like a Magnus Carlsen and Anish Giri, and they'll throw a little shade at each other you know? <laughs> on Twitter. You do something where they see you lose a game, they, they see the other person loses a game, you sure there's going to be a tweet about it, and it's going to be, right, uh, it's, it's not going to be just direct. They're going to think of something interesting that you have to think about it for a second and say, what did he just say? Is he insulting my mama? It, it's kind of cool to see that, but it's not as colorful, I'll call it, as you get in the parks here in New York or around the country. Oh, I love that. But that that still sounds like a lot of fun, especially at the parks. That's awesome. For anyone that's listening in, I'm sure they're like, dang, this chess actually sounds pretty exciting. What are some ways that someone can get started and good more rapidly? I'm sure it takes years to actually get to the level that you play at, but what are some things that people can do to get started and get the confidence with playing chess? Of course, I'd advise them to get my app. Shameless <laughs> plug. I have to get that do it, yeah. No, I get it. Yes, I do have an app. Maurice Ashley teaches chess. If you go to the app store, you'll find it's actually Match. Maurice Ashley teaches chess. You like the way that works. Uh, it's not <laughs> a dating app. But uh, there's honest, uh, more seriously, I was serious about getting my app, but there are other resources as well. Tons of resources. And it's great that chess is living in a golden age, really, because if you go online, you can get so much stuff for free by going to, like I said, places like chess.com, chess24.com, uh, a site called LeeChess, L-I-Chess.org. There are so many videos. There's so much content, uh, the ability to play against other players who are all around the world whenever you wish, any time of day or night that you wish. That's where the youngsters, I'd mentioned a grandmaster at the age of 12, that's why they've gotten good so quickly because all the resources are available at their fingertips now. And that's where you hyper accelerate your growth is through chess learning in the digital age. Beating grandmasters, amazing. Becoming a grandmaster, even better. But please tell us what it's like to have a Hennessy commercial with your face on it. Actually, my face is not in the commercial. They have somebody representing me from the younger days playing in the park. They did do a different kind of commercial that you can go to Hennessy's website and you will see my face uh, at the city in the city of or the town of Cognac, where they flew me out to show me exactly how they make the product, which is really quite a cool experience. 
But yeah, who knew? Henny and chess. Chess goes <laughs> with everything, man. If you want to make it better, just add chess to it. And <laughs> it's, it's a real honor to have been recognized this way. The Hennessy's policy is never stop, never settle. And the wild rabbit, what's your wild rabbit? What is the thing that wakes you up in the morning, that keeps you ambitious, that sets your soul on fire? And that's what the commercial is about. That's what Hennessy stands for. And they tried to find people who embody that spirit. And so I was really excited when they reached out to me and said, we've chosen you to, in this way, represent the brand and represent this concept of the wild rabbit, never stop, never settle. So it's exciting. And watching myself, especially watching the commercial during the NBA finals, basketball being my favorite game, <laughs> and to sit there and all of a sudden the commercial comes on. It's like, what? Is this surreal? Growing up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, coming from Jamaica, the background I had, to now be able to see a commercial on such a high stage, that just that just represents my family, you know, the place I'm from in a way that just I can't fully explain. It just, it really is amazing. For the people around the world that want to be great at something, they have greatness in them, they can feel it in themselves, but they want to prove it to the world. What piece of advice do you have for them that they can start utilizing today to get there? Greatness is a mindset. Greatness is not about proving yourself to the world. The best advice I ever got from, for, from chess, from anyone in chess, this is like the top level advice, was from a grandmaster, Alexander Shabalov, who on my quest to becoming a title, he saw me fail. I lost the big game once. And he said to me, you know, you're going to get there, Maurice, but recognize this. In order to become a grandmaster, you must first be a grandmaster. And that hit me because what he was saying is, you've got to be about it. You've got to live that thing. You've got to do the work, make the sacrifices, live the lifestyle, put in the effort that it requires to get wherever you want to get to. But it's the process. It's not the final destination that counts. It's the process of being, of living, of breathing, of embodying the spirit of greatness that then will be reflected later in everything else you do, including that outcome, whatever it is that you were talking about trying to get to. Yes, I became a grandmaster. The world recognized me as the first black grandmaster in history and all the accolades and and benefits that followed. But the most important thing was the journey to the title. I'll never really get that journey back to becoming a grandmaster. I'll never get that journey back. It was a special time. It was a fairy tale journey in my life. But I'm on another journey and other journeys. As I study languages, I'm a language lover and you know, study French and Spanish and Russian. As I now I'm biking all the time uh, as my main form of exercise. And I'm thinking maybe I'll, should I be in the Tour de France or what? <laughs> okay, no, <laughs> let's get real. <laughs> but <laughs> point is, I try to get better from where I am all the time. Improvement comes in small steps every single day. 
And that's when you internalize the process of greatness that you truly become a grandmaster. Wow, that's incredible. I hope people are listening to this. Maurice, thank you so much for hopping on the mics with us today from the bottom of our hearts. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the things that you have going on, what are the best ways that people can do that? I'm online, mauriceashley.com, and I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. Follow me on all those devices, all those social media platforms. And as I said, my new app is out. It's a trash talking app. It teaches you chess, but I'll be trash talking you and also giving you some thumbs up along the way so you can get that as well. (laughs) Show our brother some love. Show him some love. Yes. And we'll be sure to include all of those in the show notes. Maurice, it's been a true pleasure. You're a master at your craft and you come with many words of wisdom and nuggets. I think anyone can take with them. Truly appreciate the opportunity to talk on the mics. And we'll see everyone next time. Thank you.